ESPN Daily is presented by Supercuts, the smarter, easier way to get a haircut. It's not just any haircut. It's Supercuts. Today, we continue our conversation about Title IX through the documentary series 37 Words here on ESPN Daily. It's Wednesday, June 22nd. Title IX became law 50 years ago, an amendment to the Civil Rights Act. Schools could no longer provide more resources to men than to women, and that's why it had such impact in sports. Sports programs for women and girls back then were barely a thing, and our bodies were generally not seen as fit to play or to compete. I remember when I told my Russian studies professor that I was going to try out for the Olympic team, he said, if you want to ruin your body, go ahead. So it was a very difficult time. I'm Allison Glock, head of W Studios. Part two of ESPN Films documentary series on Title IX, 37 Words, is directed by Nicole Noonan. We'll talk about the first women at Yale to Row crew and the historic protest they led in the early 70s, shortly after Title IX was implemented, where the women ended up naked and victorious. Here's my conversation with Nicole about all the fascinating layers to their story. So when I found out that I was going to be directing an episode of this Title IX series, I started talking about it with other women in my life. And I kind of wanted to get a read on, like, what did people know about Title IX? And what did they know about the history of Title IX? And, and what did it mean to them? And, you know, I found out that not unlike myself, most people really didn't know much about how it came to be. But... A friend of mine was at Yale in the 1970s. But bear in mind that, you know, Yale had just become co-ed in 1969. So in 1974, 75, 76, women were still a really new phenomenon at Yale. And men weren't really sure how to deal with the women there. And what I was gleaning from my friend was that it was actually a really painful, difficult experience to try to be a woman on the Yale campus in that era. And Title IX had just been passed, and people knew about that. They knew there was a law that entitled women to equity in educational institutions, but it hadn't really turned into much in terms of, you know, what it meant for specific women on the ground who were facing discrimination. And so you have to imagine that, like, at that time at Yale, women rowing was completely new as well. Yeah, and that was an extension, I guess, of the attitudes of the university at large as far as being inhospitable to having women around generally. Right. I mean, uh, the president of the university at the time went so far as to tell people when they decided to admit women in 69 that not to worry, Yale had always prided itself on educating a thousand male leaders. And he said, don't worry, we're not, we're going to still educate a thousand male leaders every year. We're just going to add some women to the mix. So the women were made to feel like they were kind of an add-on. And I think a lot of them felt like the reason that they had been admitted was to be, to be there to entertain the men. And that discrimination, you know, was present in athletics, but it was in, in the student body and also amongst professors. And how did the 
crew team, how did they find their way, first of all, to the team? And then I guess it's a little surprising that they even had a team <laughs> given, given uh, the hostility toward women coming to campus. So they had they had a wonderful uh, coach named Nat Case who was coaching the women's crew team at the time, and he was being paid a fraction of what the uh, men's coaches were being paid, but he was incredibly dedicated to it, and he recruited women, many of whom had never even seen a crew boat before when they arrived at Yale. He would take a, a wooden boat and he would put it out on the lawn, you know, uh, near where they were eating in the dining hall, and women would come up and say, what's that? And he'd say, well, would you like to try rowing? And you talked to the team captain at the time, Chris Ernst, about him. Credit Nat for all um, how bad we were or whatever, how badly we rode. He pushed us. He allowed us to be challenged physically. He didn't treat us like girls. You know, he treated us like athletes. And we were stronger and better than most other crews, you know, because of that. There were other Ivy League schools that had women's teams and um, Yale was trying to, to become great, which they did actually very quickly. And, and pretty soon they, they, they really started um, winning and becoming something really amazing. And that was happening at the same time as the men's team was not doing well at all. So I think that added to the animosity in the boathouse. Yeah. And just to revisit a little bit some of those obstacles or some of the, the dearth of resources um, for their team. Tell me more about the equipment and uniforms and anything else that was just not available to them. Yeah, at the beginning, you know, there, there were no uniforms. There were no women's rowing boats at that time. Didn't really exist as a thing. Later, they, they did. But at that point in time, they were literally taking wooden blocks and putting them in between, you know, their shoes and the boat so that uh, because their legs weren't long enough otherwise to row. And interestingly, like in Europe and other places, women had been rowing for generations. You know, there were fantastic female rowers in Russia and the UK and all these other countries. And over here, we literally didn't even have basic equipment for women to row. So what these women achieved in a relatively short amount of time is really astounding. Really, the first time I got into a boat, I knew that I wanted to do this. And I knew that I belonged in that boat and that I knew how the boat went. It, it just completely gelled with me and my personality. We were outside using my muscles. The idea of like working out and getting strong and pushing your body, you know, um, as hard as you do in rowing, which is just such a physically grueling, you know, kind of endurance type of sport, that was, that was really new to them. There was rhythm, there was beauty, there was energy. And I just, I, I really, I felt like an oak. I loved it. I loved it right from the first minute. And I think that experience really helped them face and deal with a lot of the discrimination that they were encountering, not just within the rowing world at Yale, but within Yale in general. When you feel, you know, disapproved, to put it mildly, from the outside, you, you bond more tightly. But also, you know, for me, I had been looking for this type of community of women for my whole life. And not just because they were women, but because they were women who were fighting for themselves. They were fighters. 
and they were all different and they were all full of delight that they could do this. You know, they were doing this for themselves, not for anybody else. You know, women working out was not a thing. So women were being harassed just for going to the gym. Kind of like, what do you think you're trying to do? Getting, you know, you're trying to make your body strong. One woman was basically told, um, you know, if, if you want to go ahead and ruin your body by training for the Olympics, you know, sure. But where do you think that's going to get you in life? Let's talk about the boathouse. You, you mentioned that it was, you know, inhospitable. There wasn't even a women's restroom or changing room. So the boathouse was like, you know, a boathouse that had been treasured by the men for generations with trophies and pictures of, of Yale great rowers of, of yore. And the women were definitely made to feel like they didn't belong there and they weren't welcome there. And there were bathrooms and showers for the men and nothing for the women. But the team got really good despite all that. I mean, by 1975, the Yale Women's Crew Team won a world championship, a new thing to even have that competition for women at the time. And then they were getting ready for the Olympics the next year. So the Yale uh, Women's Crew Team started facing really big problems when they did come back from 1975 winning a world championship. And they were really high on that. And training for the Olympics in 76, where women were going to be rowing in the Olympics for the very first time, and they started to get pneumonia. And the reason they were getting pneumonia was that there were no showers in the boathouse, which was completely overtaken by the men who didn't want the women there. And after they would train and row in the winter in really icy and cold conditions, they would have to sit in the bus and wait for 40 minutes while the men went and took hot showers, hung around, chatted, and finally got back on the bus. And they're sitting there, you know, soaked in their sweat, chunks of ice, you know, on their mm-hmm. shirts, et cetera, and, and getting really sick. And they just decided they had had enough. They have this extraordinary captain, Chris Ernst, and an amazing stroke, Ann Warner, um, who were part of that 75 champion world championship team. And kind of together as a unit, they concocted this idea that they should protest to the athletic director at the time, this woman named Joni Ernst. They kind of tried to think about strategically what could they do that would really make a difference. They decided to take off their clothes and write Title IX on their chests and backs, put their sweats on, march into the athletic director's office, and strip, exposing those words on their bodies. I remember being in, I think it was a locker room, and I remember someone writing on my back while I wrote on the person in front of me's back and how quiet we were and the dignity and the excitement, but the confidence, really. Chris Ernst floated the idea of we could take our clothes off kind of as a joke, and everyone kind of collectively realized that it was because of their naked bodies that they have women's bodies that they were suffering discrimination, and that by showing their naked bodies, they could make a powerful point. We did formulate the plan that would be, would be attention-getting, would make our point, and 
Anne said to me, I dare you, I remember that. That was always her thing. Like, you know, the gauntlet is down. I was talking to Anne Warner about this idea that it was very strategic. But she said, think about how awful it was that we were in that position. Realize how awful it is that showing the naked body is the only way to shock a system because they're defining you by that naked body. It's it's very sad. And um, that was very powerful to me. The letter that Chris Ernst wrote and, and read, the letter is an incredible, incredible letter. And the first sentence of it is, these are, these the, are bodies the bodies that Yale, Yale is exploiting. We have come here today to make clear how unprotected we are. To show graphically what we are being exposed to. These are normal human bodies. You know, it was an idea that I had to have them pass the letter around and each read a line from it. We're not just statistics in your win column. We're human and being treated less than such. There has been a lack of concern and competence on your part. Because I was trying to think of different ways to honor their desire that the story be truly told collectively and to make the point that even though it was, you know, Chris who wrote it, she had help writing it. It was really, the statement was coming from all of them and all of them had put their bodies on the line. But not only that, they had arranged for a friend of theirs who was a New York Times stringer um, and a photographer to be there so that this action could actually be written up in newspapers all around the country. And it embarrassed Yale. And it forced Yale to agree to build um, showers for them and, um, and add on to the boathouse. And it really is kind of seen as a seminal protest because it was the first time, I think, that a female athletic team had invoked Title IX in a protest that resulted in real change. And so it became really important because of the ripple effect of people saying, oh, we have Title IX, we can stand up, we can demand equity, and, and we can we can really change and an institution, even an institution as kind of you know fearsome as Yale University. After the break, we'll discuss the other huge Title IX development that unfolded at Yale in the 70s, Alexander v. Yale. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home some huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. 
Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, so another significant Title IX case that came out of Yale around the same time was Alexander v. Yale. Tell us what that established and how that intersected with the crew team's protests. Yeah, so I came into our early story meetings for this documentary series, and then I looked at the research that had already been done by our amazing producer, uh, Claire. And one of the things on her list was a, a legal case called Alexander v. Yale. And it was from the same year. I learned, because I had not known, that Alexander v. Yale was a really, really important case because it established for the first time that sexual discrimination in an institution, federally funded institution, was a violation of Title IX. But the story of how that case came to be turned out to be incredibly um, aligned with what was going on with a crew protest. It came about because brilliant young women at Yale in these early days of co-education at Yale suffering enormous amounts of discrimination, figured out that they could leverage Title IX as a law to make change. And then we realized that a member of the crew team in 76, who was part of that protest, named Ronnie Alexander, was the lead plaintiff in the Alexander v. Yale case. My name is Ronnie Alexander, and I thought that If I went to Yale, then even if I didn't like it, I could go anywhere and do anything. And so that it was, it was an opportunity. She had come to Yale to study the flute and classical music, and that was her whole world at the time. And she had a music professor whom whom she alleged raped her. And, you know, one of the things that we discovered when we interviewed Ann Olivarius, um, who's a lawyer now, who, who works on sexual discrimination cases, she was a student at the time, and she was fighting sex discrimination at Yale kind of on every front she possibly could. And she described that at that time, in the early 70s, there really wasn't a concept that a woman could be raped by someone at Yale. Like if you were a Yale man or you were a Yale professor, you were pretty much entitled to whatever you wanted in regards to women. Certainly at Yale, it was not considered that, you know, particularly it was almost an all-white community, but white, wealthy men should have any consequences for, you know, having a few minutes of whatever they wanted to do with a woman. It was just, you couldn't be raped by a Yale man. It just, the concept didn't exist. At that time, the word sexual harassment barely existed. And so Anne Olivarius, this young Yale student who had done um, a survey about the plight of women at Yale for the Yale Corporation, discovered all of the sexual harassment and abuse that she was discovering. She went to the New Haven Law Collective and said, I think we can bring a case under Title IX against this. And um, these very, very brilliant lawyers decided that they did want to bring a, a lawsuit against Yale under Title IX, and Ronnie Alexander was the person that they thought would make the strongest plaintiff. The Ronnie Alexander story, as you've 
um, documented it is really moving. And largely because it's also the story of how these incidents of sexual harassment and sexual assault can derail a whole life and can rob you of the, the things that you love. And wasn't it true that, you know, she came in as a, an exceptional and gifted music student and then she, because that was now associated with her assault, she gave that up. Yeah, that's true. And when we did talk to Ronnie, um, it was it was a really, really profound experience because of exactly what you said, Allison. She she really did have her life completely derailed. I was devastated, both at what happened, but also in a way that I'd allowed it to happen. You know, a lot of anger directed at myself instead of at him. I um, quit the band, I quit music, I stopped doing any of that stuff, changed my major, and I tried to forget that, you know, any of that had ever happened and that music had been such an important part of my life. And ironically, um, she was dismissed from having standing in the lawsuit pretty early on in the case because um, the judge found that there was no ongoing injury to her. And this was the thing that really stuck in the craw and is still kind of enraging all the other women who were involved in the lawsuit. They kept making us smaller and we couldn't fight in the courtroom. And there were lots of other women who were supporting us. What we thought was the most effective thing that we could do would be to demonstrate outside of the courtroom and try to garner support. But in the end, I wasn't allowed to testify. I was just angry and frustrated that I couldn't tell my story in court. I think that's so important because it's, it's kind of a, like a, a, layer, a layer deeper than we often think about sexual discrimination and, and what it means and how it impacts people. But if you're going to have the same rights as anyone else to go to college and follow your dreams and, um, you know, have, a, have a, cho- a life of your own choosing um, and not be discriminated against, then something like this should very clearly be able to be seen as an ongoing injury. That language, when you said that, that language was like pierced through my heart, <laughs> you know, because that's precisely what it is. It's, it, it, it's actually an ongoing injury and, and all the more so because there isn't restitution or, or justice around it. Yeah, exactly. And one of the other plaintiffs in that case was the woman you mentioned, Pamela Price, who's now a civil rights attorney, correct? Right. Tell us about what happened with Pamela Price at Yale and her role in in this lawsuit. Uh, Pamela Price is, I mean, her story is is really extraordinary. She arrived at Yale on a scholarship, and she was a um, already a kind of you know a brilliant, self actualized, radical black activist when she arrived at Yale. She had already been politically active for a long time. And she had a really strong sense of of justice and a strong sense of her, you know, feeling about the necessity of her fighting for justice. And she 
tells a story of basically a professor who told her that if she slept with him, she would get an A. If she didn't, she would get a C. And she reported that right after it happened. In the spring of 1976, I was a political science major, and my focus was international relations. And so I took a course from Professor Raymond Duvall on international relations and politics. Part of that course involved a final exam and a paper. I did not do well on the final exam because I was sick. And so I had to get an extension on the paper. And so I finished my paper and I went to turn the paper in. Um, when I got to Professor Duvall's office, I was anticipating just sliding the paper under the door, but then he opened the door and he invited me to come into his office. <laughs> While we were in his office, Professor Duvall and I had a very strange conversation <laughs> because he took the paper and he proceeded to say to me that he hoped that this was an A paper because he would really hate to give me a C. And I said, me too. <laughs> I hope so too. I don't want to see him. I'm, that would be good. And then he started saying, well, how bad, you know, do you want an A? And I was like, you know, I'm I'm good. That would be great. You know, how bad do you, I really would hate to give you a C. And he kept repeating this mantra, how bad do you want an A? And I just kept thinking, I don't want to see. I'm not a C student. I had no frame of reference. I had no idea where this conversation was going. And so when he said, will you make love to me? In my brain, I'm thinking, does he mean like right here now in this room? And so all I could think was no, uh, no. And I just kept saying no. Then as I'm processing it, I'm thinking, no, that's not going to happen. And I couldn't say anything other than no. Then finally I asked him, well, can I leave now? And he said, yes. And as I left the office, he said, God, you have a really turn on body. By the time I got to the bottom of the stairs, I was pissed off. I was really angry because it finally had dawned on me, I'm going to get a C. It doesn't matter what I did on my paper, I'm going to get a C. I was an A student. I didn't have any C's on my transcript. And then she actually went to Africa for a year abroad. And when she came back, this lawsuit was being organized and she was asked if she would be a plaintiff. Pamela really ended up becoming pivotal to this case. And here she was, this, you know, um, young Black woman and this massive lawsuit that was talking about discrimination by very esteemed Yale professors. And it's covered in the news. It's like there she's on national talk shows. Oh, they persist. And, yeah. and the way the culture mm -hmm. is alive to continue. Yeah, that's the problem. Protected. Yeah, that's the culture. It's the culture. I've been telling people, for me, culture eats. Culture eats policy for lunch. I heard our new chief of police say that, and I was like, so true. It's in the paper all the time. There's a big trial 
Yale's lawyer tries to discredit her. That was the strategy. So everything about her is kind of torn apart. And she just stood strong um, because she believed in it. It didn't change the result. The story is a success story in a certain way, the story of Alexander V. Yale, because the judge did find that sexual discrimination was a violation of Title IX. In the wake of Alexander V. Yale, most universities did establish grievance procedures so that if a woman had been assaulted or raped or, or discriminated against, they could bring their case to someone in the university and have it looked at under Title IX. Now, this process is incredibly problematic, and there's hardly a university where it works well, but it does exist, and that's a step forward, and that would not have been possible without the kind of legal brilliance of these lawyers and students who made it happen at Yale University in in the mid-'70s. We'll be back with filmmaker Nicole Noonan after this break. Shopping for Father's Day is usually a challenge because you wait until the last minute. But Macy's Gift Finder makes it incredibly fast and easy to find the right gift just in time for Father's Day. Whether you're shopping for your brother's first Father's Day or your Renaissance man grandpa, whose interests, of course, are all over the map, Macy's Gift Finder has so many great gift ideas that you can easily pick out something special to celebrate them both. You can shop by price, anywhere from 25 bucks and under to 100 bucks and over, You can also sort by category, like cologne, watches, and more. Or gift lists for items like, I don't know, your grill master or golfer in your life. You can also get top tech, from Beats headphones to JBL portable speakers. Or if you're looking for top brands, you'll find gifts from Calvin Klein, Polo Ralph Lauren, and Columbia. So what are you waiting for? Father's Day is June 16th and we'll be here before you know it. Macy's offers the ultimate gift guide to making selecting something special for dad incredibly easy this year. Head to Macy's.com slash gift finder today. That's Macy's.com slash gift finder. We all know breakfast is an important part of your day, but sometimes when you're traveling for business, you end up staying at a hotel that doesn't offer any. And you know what happens? You grab a cup of coffee and skip the meal entirely. We've all been there. I know I have. But if you book a room at La Quinta by Wyndham, you can enjoy their free bright side breakfast featuring delicious baked goods, fruit, eggs, yogurt, and waffles. And really, who doesn't want to start their day with a fresh, hot waffle? Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow, you shine. Book direct at LQ.com. It's interesting that there was this overlap between the crew team protest and Alexander V. Yale. Was it a product of that place in particular? You know, could this have happened at, at any school at that time? I mean, why, why Yale? <laughs> no, I know. I think about that too. I mean, think about a woman who would be willing to go to Yale at that time, you know, who would want that, who would be brilliant enough to get into Yale, but also kind of um, strong enough to want to be at the tip of the spear in that way. And you've got some really extraordinary women. They were put together. They put all the women in one dorm They were kind of isolated and they were incredibly discriminated against. I mean, people would mock them for speaking up in class or they wouldn't let them talk. It was constant. And so I think that created a kind of galvanization of women. They had to stick together to survive. It's like a really great example of the importance of civil rights laws like Title IX because it took, you know, 
these women facing this thing, being together, being brilliant and strong, but it also took them going like, wait a minute, we have this law on our side, you know, we can do something with this. If half the population is spending so much time simply trying to kind of survive in a high school or a college, like think about the potential that's lost and think about like the the dreams that are deferred and think about the enormous cost to our society of all of this. So I think I went from seeing Title IX as being kind of a, a great to have to being just like a an absolutely essential tool for enabling our democracy to, to survive. I came to feel like educating young women about the importance of Title IX was one of the most important things that, that we can do if we want to see long-term change. It's fascinating and it's encouraging. These are necessary stories. Yeah, and I feel like for Yale University, like the fact that they welcomed us in to tell this story of, you know, the crew protest, you know, they're proud of it. You know, Ginny Gilder, who is one of the owners of the Seattle Storm now and um, who was a, a member of the crew team and part of the 76 protest, she actually helped them build a brand new boathouse a number of years ago that's absolutely spectacular and it's called the Gilder Boathouse. And so, so much change has happened, not just because of their agitation, but also their cooperation with Yale. The 76 crew team is sort of a, a hallowed part of the story that Yale tells about its own history. And I think that's important because I think it's, it is hard for people when they're thinking about going up against an institution, especially one that they actually love. Like these women came to Yale because they wanted to be Yaleys, you know? They wanted to be at Yale. They fought to be at Yale. And they continued to fight to be at Yale even while they were there. Um, but it wasn't because they didn't respect a lot of the things that are, you know, unique and wonderful about Yale itself. And so I also wanted to leave people with that feeling that like, you can do something that at the time seems really hard and difficult when you're standing up for what's right against an institution you love, and you can become a part of the changing fabric of that institution, helping it um, evolve, you know, to being its best self. And I feel like that's what this crew team did. Nicole, this has been a brilliant, as, as expected, and lovely chat with you about 37 Words. And thank you so much for sitting down and walking us through this important part of history and this look toward a, a brighter future. I'm thankful for it. Well, I'm so thankful to you, Allison, for having the incredible idea to do a series like this and that telling these Title IX stories can be transformational. I really, I really think they can be, and I, it's been an honor to be a part of it. I'm Allison Glock, and you can watch the documentary series 37 Words about 50 years of Title IX, streaming now on ESPN Plus and Hulu.